Good morning, church. I'm uh, very excited to be a part of this church. Casey and I have already grown to love most of you so dearly, uh, and you guys love us so well. In return, uh, just a little background on me. I've been involved in some type of ministry for approximately 23 years, uh, whether it be music or preaching or those different things. I, I pastored a church for six years. Um, I uh, would say I preached a lot of good sermons, but I only preached them within the last three years. Uh, once God uh, get, did a change in me through his word, um, I, uh, as, as Brother Kelby said, I, I love the word of God. I believe the word of God is enough to stand on its own. You don't need any of me. You don't need any any fancy euphemisms, you don't need me to be funny or a comedian, you need the Word of God, so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I do, I am using the ESV version, I do want to tell you guys that, I use the ESV version uh, for preaching, I want to let you know that so that if you see a couple words a little different than what you got, that's why my version is probably different, but uh, I want to get straight into the Word of God, because that's, that's, the, that's the star of the show this morning. Now hear the infallible, inspired Word of God. John 5, verses 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had, that he had already been there for a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, that it is inspired, infallible, and inerrant, that we can believe what it says, for we hear your voice clearly through your word. Father, we ask that you would remove the veil, that we may see clearly what you have to say to us this morning. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, guide our steps in this. Illuminate the way, for your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So this is a, a, a little different type of narrative than what we've seen in the past. You know, we've talked about, uh, previously we've talked about the interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist. John the Baptist constantly pointing to him and saying, Behold the Lamb of God. We've talked, to, uh, we've talked about the interaction between he and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, 
coming to him at night and him saying, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And we've seen that conversation, deeply theological conversation that they had about the rebirth necessary in order to enter into eternal life. And we've also seen the interaction that he has with the Samaritan woman, how he changed her life completely and how she changed her community completely by sharing the gospel with them. So we've seen those things, we've seen those interactions, we've seen some deeply theological interactions about how to be born again, how to be saved, how to be completely changed, renewed, given a new heart, the heart of, the stone, the heart of stone removed and the brand new heart of flesh given, right? We've seen those things. Well, this is a different type of narrative. Uh, we've, we hear from J.C. Ryle, and he points out that there's, this is one of the few miracles that John has talked about. John doesn't go into a lot of miracles, yet we see that in this interaction, there's not a lot of theological depth. Like, there's not a lot of, you, you know, the, the, the concepts that help you understand how to be saved. But there are important themes that are expressed in these verses that if we will take hold of them, it'll change us in some good way that we can understand a little bit more clearly who our Savior is. There's actually five themes that we could look at, really. But first, we have to address the elephant in the room. I read out of the ESV, and some of you may have been reading out of a King James or New King James, and you may have said, where's verse 4? And I'm glad you asked, because I, I, I let uh, Brother Kelby know, me and him have talked extensively about this this week. I'm fixing to open the can of worms for you guys. We're going to talk about something awesome, and we're going to figure out why many of our Bibles do skip from verse 3 to verse 5. What happened? Did these guys uh, have a typo or an error of some sort? The translations that do include verse 4, that what they speak of is an angel coming to stir the waters, and the first person in is healed, right? That's what we talk about in those. But some of our Bibles skip that, and the answer is simple. It's called textual criticism. Um, and that is the study of the original manuscripts that the Bible was written from. Some, I've actually heard it talked about. I've heard, I've heard preachers say before that uh, all these new versions are just them taking the, uh, the King James and trying to fix it into modern language. That is not accurate. These new versions, most of them, especially the ESV, NASB, these newer versions, NIV to, to a certain extent, what they've done is they've gone back to the original manuscripts and they've tried to recreate from the original manuscripts. They don't just trust what one version has said and try and fix it, which is actually what King James did in 1611, which I think he actually wrote the third version. Is that right? Is he King James, I think, was the third version written from, from the original manuscripts. So, why doesn't it appear in these newer translations? It's very simple. It does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. Though that verse doesn't appear in those early manuscripts. Uh, most scholars believe that it was in a later edition. You see, when the Bible was, was, was being given to the known church as it was being written by the apostles, right? It would come to a church and they would have somebody who was in charge of transcribing that for the people and then they would send it to the next church and guess what they would do they would transcribe it and send it to the next church that's how it was passed along 
So there were these notes written in the margins and these, these other things. And if, if you get a piece of paper and you don't know why that is in the margin, you make sure you include it, right? I mean, because you don't want to miss something. And most scholars agree that this was a later edition that explained why they thought the water was stirred. It was most likely it was an artesian well or a hot spring like in Arkansas that, that bubbled up the water, you know, and they have healing properties in there, right? There's, there's minerals in those waters that, that kind of can help heal. So does this alter the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible? Nope, not a lick. In fact, if it does anything, it gives us more proof of its consistency and truth. Because there have been scholars who have looked and looked and looked. This book that we have before us, in whatever version, this book that we have before us is the most authenticated book in history. It has over 5,000 original manuscripts within two to 300 years or less than the original moments that it happened. Do you know the next in line is Homer's Iliad? And guess how many originals they have? 17. We have in our hands, if you've got a Bible in your lap, you have in your lap the most trustworthy book ever written. Trust that. We have some variances, yes, but we don't have any errors. And regardless of what the atheist may say, we do not have any contradictions. But let's dig into the important things, right? Let's go. I want to read through verses 1 through 9 for you again. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and, the G- and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when this water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. As we go into this theme, I have to quote J.C. Ryle in order to fill the quota. We must never, ever have a sermon from this pulpit without a quote from J.C. Ryle. He is far more ready to save man, to save than man is to be saved. Far more willing to do good than man is to receive it. And we see this in his interaction with this man. Our first theme's clear. Theme one is, Jesus is so merciful to those who are in need. Jesus is so merciful to those who are in need. He is a willing Savior. And in this text, he seeks out the man, not vice versa. This man is chilling by the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus seeks him out and says to him, Do you want to be healed? He's been invalid for 38 years. 38 years he's been invalid. Not able to move around, walk, nothing. And he's been laying there with this multitude and Jesus sought him out. 
and asked him the question of his life. Do you want to be healed? Jesus knows the heart. He knows, he knows his heart. Uh, R.C. Sproul speculated that the man was possibly comfortable in his position, not having to do anything for himself. The man's answer is pretty telling, right? When Jesus says, do you want to hear do you want to be healed? He says, I don't have anybody to help me get in the pool. He says that he has no one to help him get in the pool. Not, you better believe I want to be healed. Jesus does what a merciful Savior can do, though. He extends a mercy to this man, the mercy of a physical healing of this man. Make no mistakes, it's by his mercy when we are healed. And hear me clearly, it is also by his mercy when we are not. For we are always in his will and in his sovereign plan. And everything is working to our good if we love him or call it according to his purpose. You see, we deserve really, honestly, if, we, if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we really deserve nothing but wrath from God because we're sinful. Yet, he chooses to give us mercy, and he gives this man a mercy that the man really didn't even ask for, right? He said, I don't have anybody to help me in the pool. He tells him to take up his bed and walk, and that is compassion. And Jesus has compassion on those who are lost. And in need, many times throughout Scripture, look at Matthew 9, 36. When he, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Just like us. Before Christ, we were sheep without a shepherd, wandering, lost, in need of help. And we are so undeserving of that compassion from God, yet Jesus gives it to this man, and he gives it to us. And then what happens next? Jesus tells him to get up and walk, and he does, and he carries his bed, and there's one problem with that. It's the Sabbath. And that brings us to the next theme. Verse 10 through 12, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Our second theme is this. Legalism ignores love and care for our fellow man. These Jews are of only one mind. They are looking at a dude that they've probably seen quite often for 38 years, unable to do anything for himself, walking, holding his bed. And what's the first thing they say? Hey, it's unlawful for you to carry your bed. Now first, let's approach the truthfulness of their statement. R.C. Sproul in his commentary was very specific on this. He said that he couldn't find a law that said you couldn't carry your bed on the Sabbath. And you know, I thought back and I've read the law pretty extensively. I can't find it either. And there's a reason for that. It's not there. It turns out, I don't know if you know this, it's one law that says to, to rest on the Sabbath, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments that we should all memorize. It says don't do any work on the Sabbath. 
Well, in order for them to be happy with that law, they made 39 more to go with it. They made 39 new laws to accompany that so that they could tell you exactly what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And this man was breaking the 39th one. You cannot carry any personal items from one place to another. So this man had been healed from an infirmity for, of 38 years. And the Jews could not rejoice with him because they were too concerned about the laws that they had created and how he had broken them. Jesus spoke directly to the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees, all the makers, all the big movers in the, in the, in the Jewish community. He spoke to them about this in Luke eleven forty two through 48 when he said, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him. This is one of my favorite interactions in this whole point. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. So what is he saying? And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your, fa whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. They made up these rules. They were so pious. They did it so well. They put on such a great show. They had such awesome traditions. And they didn't lift a finger to do the things that God desires most. I desire obedience, not sacrifice. I desire, he desires us to love one another. Love your neighbor. They didn't. They loved their traditions. Let us pray that we would never fall into that legalistic way of life. Verse 13 says, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Well, that brings us to theme three. There is no special faith that makes us get healed. something interesting that we can enter just a small short verse doesn't seem like it really matters right well guess what the faith healer what and, and this and this is why i preach on this because i hear it on 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 christian television i hear if you have enough faith you can get anything you can be healed from anything if you just have enough faith right the faith healer will tell you that you have to have enough faith to be healed and if you aren't healed it's your fault because you must not have enough faith. Well, let's look at this closer. Did Jesus begin this interaction with a deep theological knowledge like he did with Nicodemus or with the Samaritan woman or with John the Baptist or with his disciples? He didn't. This verse tells us that this man didn't even know who Jesus was. 
Jesus literally walks up to the guy and says, do you want to be healed? I don't have anybody to help me. Well, take up your bed and walk. And he was healed. This man didn't know who Jesus was. So how can we say that he had any faith to get healed? He didn't have faith in Jesus at all. He just did what the guy told him to, right? And he tells him, I don't even know who healed me. Jesus decided to heal the man out of his sovereign choice. And it still works that way. God heals whomever he wills. We could never have enough faith to get ourselves healed. Why can I speak to you about this? Because in 2015, my mom was suffering. She had a heart condition. She developed infections in both legs. And I believe that if I just had enough faith, she would get healed. If all these people who prayed with me had enough faith, she would be healed. And on December 25th of 2015, my mom died. And I felt like it was my fault because I didn't have enough faith. And that is a lie from the devil himself. There is no magic faith that gets somebody healed. There's no magic faith that fills up your bank account. There's no magic faith that makes your kids act right. We have the word of God, and we have a wonderful wonderful savior who saves us and god will extend mercy at times and heal us and god will extend mercy sometimes and not heal us and whatever it is it leads us one direction towards our father it draws us closer to him let no man tell you that you need some kind of special thing special faith special feeling in order to be healed or be rich This man didn't do anything to be healed. Jesus walked up and healed him. And then I love what happens next. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And that leads us to theme four. Jesus' message was one of repentance. He didn't leave it. At a healing, he called the man to repent. In fact, it says that Jesus found him in the temple. This implies that it was not just happenstance. He tells him, stop continuing in sin so that he would not face a worse fate. 38 years invalid's not fun. It can't be fun. But there's a fate worse than that, an eternal punishment in hell. And Jesus didn't come to just heal folks willy-nilly and be a sideshow act. He came to draw the lost sheep unto himself. It's not all about signs and wonders. He's not willy-nilly zapping people and healing them. He wanted to save people. He wanted to redeem them, to call them to repentance. That's why as he began his ministry in Mark, he said, it says, and from that point on, he, he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It may not be popular in our day to confront people with sin. In fact, it's definitely not. 
It wasn't in Jesus' day either. Why? We don't like it. The Jews hated him for doing that. People don't like people who point out the things that they might need to change in their lives. They don't like calls for repentance. I don't like it. You don't like it if you're honest with yourself. We don't like being confronted with our sin. So in the next verse, we see the typical reaction in the last theme, and that's this, verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had been healing him. Theme five is we do not like to be confronted with our sin. Everybody in that place knew what the Jews' the Jews' feelings on Christ was. He was constantly trying. They were trapping him. They were constantly trying to get him caught up in his own words. They were constantly making him trying to go against the Old Testament. They were constantly seeking to arrest him or kill him. And he goes directly to the Pharisees after Jesus calls him to repentance and says, hey, it was Jesus who did it. He may have been offended by Jesus confronting him with sin. We don't know. It doesn't say. He may have feared the, Jew, the, the, the Jewish leadership because they had the, way, they had the ability to say, you can't come to the temple anymore. If you can't come to the temple anymore, guess what? Your sins are never forgiven because you can't bring a sacrifice. We don't know his, his motivation, but we know our motivation. We see the real Christ regarded in this day as somebody who wasn't liked by the, by the, by the religious establishment. And we see it in our day that a, that a Jesus with wrath that confronts sin is not accepted. Atheists and God-haters reject God, re- reject God because he points out their sin. That's what they do. False converts in the church who only want a God who affirm, affirms them and and their feelings, they end up denying him by their words and their deeds. We know that. This man was healed and didn't, didn't thank Jesus. It doesn't say anything about him thanking Jesus. It just says that he went and told the, the Jews who he was. And he immediately gives them Jesus' name. It was Jesus. He did it. We cannot turn in anger towards this man, okay? Because we've been there. Some of us stay there. Some of us know within ourselves that there's no good thing in us and that we do sin constantly. And that we desperately need the repentance offered by this Savior, right? We can't turn on him because of this. We're all prone to wander. So that brings me to three points of application as we begin to to shut this thing down. We've looked at the text. We've seen what it says. We've seen those things. Now let's look at how we can apply this. First way we can apply it is this. Jesus is ultimately merciful to us, and we are undeserving of it. He's provided such a complete salvation, and we should be ever grateful for that. And we do see in this text sort of an ungratefulness, right? But Christ was still merciful to this man. In my own life, I see so many times when so many good things happen to me, and yet I'm so ungrateful to God, it seems like. I'm so thankful for his mercy, and that I can repent of those times. That he has saved me to the uttermost, and that I am held with him for all eternity. And no man can pluck me from his hand. Because I am prone to wander, yet I have a Savior who is good at saving me.
And one day, at the last trump, the voice of the archangel, and with a shout, I'll rise from a grave or from the ground, whichever, and I will be glorified and I will be with my Savior forevermore and my salvation will be complete. Second point of application is this. We must not get caught up in the vain following of signs and wonders. I've heard, I, I've literally heard it taught from a pulpit for most of my saved life that that he died for our healing and our prosperity. Jesus died for so much more than our healing and our prosperity. His death is our atonement. His death brings us reconciliation with a God who we've sinned against. The wrath of God, I love that song. The wrath of God is completely satisfied upon Christ. He suffered in ways that we will never have to because of what he did on the cross. He took all of our sins upon himself. He knew no sin, yet he took all of our sin upon himself, and he suffered and died on the cross. We could never do it, but he did it. It's forever. The reconciliation to God is forever. If you were in Christ, Christian, you have the most reason in all of the world to be thankful. For you are in his hands forever. You are reconciled to God. You are a son or a daughter of God. And you will never face his wrath. Listen, a full bank account will empty out one day. A healthy body will still die one day. Eternal life is forever. You've heard the old, the old commercial, right? A diamond is forever. Nope. Even that's going to rot away one day. But eternal life with Christ is forever. And that's what you have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the last point of application is this. Of central importance in this whole text is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the central point of this text. Jesus sought this man out. He was not done with this man. It wasn't just about getting this dude healed so he could walk and carry his bed home. It was about his life, his eternal soul. Christ called him to repentance after seeking him out to find him. Tell him, leave your sin behind. Like he told the woman, right, who was caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. He's constantly calling to repentance. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ. Are we ever going to be sin free? Nope. You can have as many laws in your life as you want. You'll never be sin free. But guess who was? Jesus. And because we give him our sin, he gives us his righteousness. And now we are judged by Christ's righteousness. And guess what? You can breathe a sigh of relief if, if you're judged by Christ's righteousness. It'd be remiss of me not to give you a, a quick gospel account. What is the gospel? Because some people don't know. Did y'all know that there's like 
a minority of people who could articulate a gospel that is coherent and biblical now in our churches. And that's rough because that's what we're supposed to be telling other people. I boil it down using a book, a simple book, cheap book. I've actually seen it at the Palmer Home Thrift Store. What is the gospel? He boils it down to four words, and I boil it down to four words because I think it's so easy. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. You see, we, this whole world was created by a God, eternal. One in essence, three in persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created this world. And it was good. And then they created man to tend it. And guess what man chose to do in his, his free agency? He chose to sin. And because Adam sinned, the Bible tells us that we are all born in sin, in desperate need of a Savior. But we've got a major problem with that. We're sinful, we need a, we need a Savior, yet we have no ability in ourselves. To accomplish it. How do we know this? Because we look at the Ten Commandments and I can't even keep the first one. I'm idolatrous. I make idols. I don't love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength all the time. Because guess what? I think about other stuff. Uh-oh. I'm in trouble. I have no ability within myself to save myself, so what do I need? I need a Savior. And guess what? Before the foundation of the world, the plan was already hatched. It's called the plan of redemption. And redemption would be accomplished through one being, God the Son, Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, all God, all man, walk this earth without sin, betrayed by a friend, hung on a cross, our sins poured upon him. The wrath of God satisfied upon him. Why, how do we know that? He drank the cup to the dregs. He took the cup that we deserve. And now, in the sacrament of communion, we take the cup that he gives. He died. Bodily, physically died. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. They didn't put him in the wrong tomb. Nobody stole the body because they didn't have a chance to. Why? Because three days later, just as he told them, if they destroy this temple three days later, I'll raise it up. Guess what? Three days later, it was risen up. He rose again. And he is alive forevermore. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is right now making his enemies his footstool. And guess who his enemies were? me and you but through Christ we can be made sons and daughters and that leaves us with the last word response what's your response to the gospel repent and trust in Christ be saved that's the response let's pray Father, we are forever undeserving, forever joyful that we were 
chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved. And that you planned, you hatched the plan, and it was executed perfectly. And that if anybody under the sound of my voice is in Christ, they are saved forever. No man can pluck them from your hand. That is a joy and a peace that we can sleep at night with without any hesitation. Father, help us to hold fast to your mercifulness towards us. Help us to always be grateful to Christ for what he has done. In times of suffering, let us not look upon a Savior who isn't doing maybe exactly like we want them want him to, but this is a Savior who has given the ultimate gift, and that is salvation. We are forever in your debt. God, we know that you are merciful and that if you choose to heal in times of suffering, that is your sovereign choice. And if you choose not to, that is also your sovereign choice and that all things, good or bad, work together for our final good. Help us to not forget that. Don't let us get caught up in legalism or or vain sign seeking or the desire to have affirmations or our feelings uh, 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 affirmed. Let us look at the word of God, believe what it says, for it is what you have said, and let us trust in what it says to lead our lives and guide us. And Father, let us never forget about the gospel. Let us always, in every situation, look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and let it be what comes from our mouth and lives in our hearts to keep us changed forever. For God, we never graduate from the gospel. We need the gospel every day and help us to know that. Father, if there be anybody under the sound of my voice who does not know you, convict their hearts. Let this sermon be a rock in their shoe until they must repent and trust in Christ. Holy Spirit, you do your work. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your kindness. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for all of the many beautiful things that you've given us. In Christ's name. Amen.